Before we begin this episode, I'm getting a phone call. I will call them back later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Two Please. I'm your host, Stubbin. And I'm your co-host, Rohit. So before we begin the episode, I want to just take a minute and ask you guys to like and follow the podcast, wherever you're listening to it or wherever you're watching it. It really benefits us given how stringent tech companies are be- becoming with uh, the automatic downloads, especially uh, even with YouTube. YouTube is is quite is quite notorious for making sure um, content gets suppressed if it's not generating the right amount of, of views. So it would be super helpful if you could just, like I said, like, share and follow the podcast and subscribe to the channel. It really does us a world of good so we can keep putting out uh, good content for you guys on a consistent basis. That's all I had to say. Uh, Rohit, what are we talking about today, my friend? So we're going to go back to our uh, thematic approach. We're taking a break from single movie episodes. This is like a very vague episode topic, to be honest, right? We're calling it must-see movies. Uh, but again, must-see movies are very subjective. Uh, yeah. What's must-see for Abhin and I may not be for you. But I think we've tried to like pick out movies that are fairly objectively good. And we've also tried to have a good mix of uh, genres, uh, some comedy, some... Uh, is there any horror? No, you took the horror out. But some, whatever, mm-hmm. mix of comedy and and uh, serious stuff. And we've tried to have a decent spread of geographies, languages as well. All right. Um, so before we begin this episode, I just need to back up Rohit's point. This is no way the IMDb top 250 list. Like, we are not going to be talking about the Shawshank Redemption, Godfather, uh, Schindler's List. Those We know those are objectively good movies. Uh, I'm not saying that's what this episode is going to be about. This episode is going to be about good films, but these have more to do with personal choices. And I'm sure that if this episode uh, resonates with a lot of you, and if you come back to us with like a commenter's ed- edition of movies you think are personally must-watches, We'll do an episode on that as well. Uh, we're, we're fluid like that. Yeah. Yes, this is a good place to start. Again, we're, we're going back to the old format of 3v3. Uh, Roth, do you want to kick us off or should I take lead on this one? Mm. Um, okay, let me start with my first movie, right? Which is uh, the 2007 movie called The Man from Earth. Directed by Michael, I can't pronounce his surname, Schenkman. Yeah, sorry, Richard Schenkman. Mm. Uh, and... Um, Based on a short story written by the sci-fi author Jerome Bixby. Uh, For those of you who don't know who Jerome Bixby is, he's written quite a few fairly influential short stories, some of which have been adopted into into Star Trek episodes, probably the most famous of them being uh, A Requiem for Methuselah. And it's the same idea that sort of was built upon or developed into the short story that eventually became The Man from Earth which in it in turn was adapted for the stage and then for the movie. Uh, so what the plot of the movie basically is, it's about this guy called John Oldman, uh, who is a professor at this university. And uh, at the start of the movie, uh, it's established that, you know, this guy has been at this university for 10-ish years and he's looking to uh, move on. He's looking to go to a different place, change of job, change of scenery, all of that. And his colleagues and friends have come to see him off at his house right they're helping him do the last of his packing and stuff and uh, it's a way of saying goodbye and you know farewell and stuff like that conversations uh, begin to take place about where he's been where he's going and uh, 
the good bit is because he works in a university and his friends come from diverse uh, scholastic backgrounds you have somebody that represents um, history somebody that represents biology somebody that represents um, anthropology so you have you know a variety of thought in the room and mm-hmm. as and when the story unfolds you start to see how each of these people approach the situation right we will be doing spoilers i i i'll try not to give like the the very biggest of the spoilers but by and large we will so essentially what john oldman reveals to this group is that uh, he's not just a man who's in his 40s he's he's closer to as he mentions 14000 years old he was born in the paleolithic era and he has some sort of condition that essentially has stopped him from aging beyond whatever he looks like in he's in his 30s or early 40s right so he sort of mm-hmm. stuck at that age and uh, at the outset obviously room full of scientific skeptics each of them approach it in their own way they try to like poke holes in his story he tells them how for the first uh, few years he was um, sort of living as a caveman then he was a sumerian for 2000 years then he you know he passed off as a babylonian <laughs> then he came to the east to uh, study under the buddha and then obviously as the story progresses the big reveal uh, here again like this is mega mega spoiler so if you guys want to skip the next 30 seconds please feel free but the major reveal is uh, he, when he mentions that after having learned from the buddha he travels back west into the roman empire to teach the the whatever the the message of buddha and uh, he sort of reveals that he is the inspiration for the jesus story uh, and he says the whole idea of jesus christ uh, essentially came from the fact that i was going around uh, spreading these teachings wow. so yeah again it's it's you know thematically the the anyway to to sort of complete the plot right all of this happens some people believe him some people uh, are disgusted by what they uh, think okay. is a very insensitive hoax that he's sort of crafting this is in essence the plot of the movie right and what i really love about this movie is that while thematically it is very vast right it talks about some guy who's lived for 14000 years and he has seen essentially the rise of human kind as we know it right because agriculture sort of came into practice 10, in 10000 bc so like society as we know it is 12000 years old so this this guy has been there i mean forget prehistory he's been hmm. pre formation of society he's seen the hunter gatherer life so he's seen the evolution of society up until the modern era thematically very vast they talk about religion they talk about science they talk about uh the implications the, the the psychological implications of having lived that long and what it does to a person to see uh you know everyone around him die eventually right mm-hmm. uh the the film tackles all of these vast themes but what is really fascinating is the way the screenplay is constructed all of this it, it's almost like a bottle episode of a movie right all of this is taking place merely in the form of conversations in that one mm-hmm. room his his house right it's a it's a small cabin that he lives in so such a thematically vast movie all of it playing out in the form of a conversation you don't feel cheated out of the scope of uh, imagination because the dialogue is crafted really well there's no uh, you know scene cutaways to any special effects there's no flashback literally it's just these room full of people talking to each other 
and in the process such a great vast storyline is you know such a great vast yarn is sort of uh, stitched together right so mm-hmm. very very i have not seen this sort of movie out there it's a very different experience the first half an hour might feel a little slow to you until it builds up to once you get a grip of the fact that hey this is the core conceit of the film that you know this really old guy is telling us about his life uh you might be a little thrown off by the fact that hey it's just a bunch of talk uh, people talking you know it's very 12 angry menesque in that sense mm-hmm. uh you know it doesn't really uh, they talk about events but save for the first scene in the court room and probably the last verdict scene it's all in one room right so mm-hmm. uh, and from what is uh, is very similar to that they it's do not cut away from the room at all it's literally in mm-hmm. one room people just talking so when he tells them he's whatever 14000 years old they're all trying to poke holes from their point of view right there's an anthropological point of view there's a some the biologist is like how is that even possible don't your cells age uh, the mm-hmm. hist- historian is like hey but uh, so were you here at this event is this what happened he's trying to like cross verify with his own knowledge right and uh, mm. uh, there is a part where i remember john says uh, look you need to understand i might be old but i'm not omniscient so if i mm-hmm. don't know things that when i was in sumer maybe something happened in india if i don't know that doesn't mean i didn't exist it's just i'm not god so he yeah. very clearly wants to make that distinction that longevity in this case does not mean he is all powerful and he mm-hmm. didn't choose this life right it just seems that he is sort of burdened with this immortality so yeah uh, it has it's, it's a very, very fascinating thought experiment it's like i think it, a lot of similar characteristics appear in in other forms of media as well the most specific being i mean one example that came to mind was was dr manhattan from watchmen where he watches yes his wife age and uh, she gets progressively more upset the more he ages and he the more she ages and he just stays the same and then he starts he's able to be present across the past present and the future and that just hollows him out as a person he's this i mean he is more of a god like entity i'm not saying is the comparison is the same is is exactly the same with regards to the man from earth but definitely there's a there's a similarity with with the question of immortality and if it's really worth it watching the people you love around you either going out of your lives or, or passing away while you stay the same uh it's an interesting and while we as a as a civilization pursue uh pursue many methods to elongate our own lives it kind of really questions uh the idea exactly i mean it's 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 fundamental nature to want to not want to let go right because we don't really know what is after death nobody knows yeah. right no one knows uh contrary to as many claims as the people want to make nobody really knows uh, so it's natural to not not want to face the unknown but i do agree with the larger message which is that immortality probably is a curse right because why do we love vacations because is because they special because they eventually end and if your yeah. life was perennially a vacation it would start seeming like it would lose its color it would lose its charm our life has meaning because it is fleeting if you mm-hmm. don't die then eventually maybe the mileage varies for each of us but eventually we're all going to reach the point where we're just begging for the sweet release of death right death exactly so very very uh, pertinent theme 
played out in a very interesting thought experiment in the form of the screenplay. So for those of you who haven't checked out, I'd strongly recommend you do. Uh, in fact, the, the this movie got its legs not so much in the theater circuit because it, it's it's like I think it's got like a hundred k production budget. It's a hmm. it's not from a major studio. It's just a bunch of dudes who decided to come together and make a movie. Like I said, it's very small budget movie. It got its legs in the peer to peer sharing and and uh, pirate piracy networks, hmm. right? So this is back in the days of LimeWire and pre the Pirate Bay, and now obviously. Hmm. Uh, piracy has really gotten people to download this movie watch it so you may not find it on any of the streaming platforms it it's a movie that really flies under the radar but mm-hmm. i won't tell you how to get it but if you can get your hands on it i would definitely recommend it, you watch it like it's there like you, you just need to find it yeah it's the there. internet it, it's right somewhere yep but yeah uh, quickly changing gears from the man from earth let's go on to my pick so my pick is more recent and this comes more from a personal bias because I want people to go watch this movie because movies like this don't get made often and I am now taking us back to Bollywood. So it's for those around me and I haven't really mentioned this on the podcast 2023 for me was a very disappointing year from a Bollywood perspective. There are maybe three good films that have come out last year in my opinion. I am yet to see Animal. I have no hopes of it even though it is to re- release on Republic Day on Netflix. But as uh, I think the ones that twelfth fail uh, with Vikram Massey was supposed to be quite good. Um, Sam Bahadur starring Vicky Kaushal is supposed to be again with quite good. Mm. Rocky Arani is the uh, Kiprem Khan is the commercial is the quintessential commercial pot boiler, so it's it has uh, some novelty there. But uh, I was for the most part very disappointed with the fare that Bollywood churned out last year. I wasn't a big fan of the two big Shah Rukh releases. I watched them in theater, that being um, Patan and Jawan. But I wasn't a big fan of the really, uh, of them. Donkey, I am yet to see, although I have been told it's not up to uh, the standard either, which is quite sad given Shah Rukh and, and Raju Hirani. But I was completely taken aback by this film that I saw as of last week, just a week prior to recording this episode. I'm we shouldn't do spoilers. Yeah, definitely. There, there will be no spoilers <laughs> for this one. So, because I want people to go watch it. I want you to go watch it because this was, some, this was a movie I was going to bypass entirely. And this is Shriram Raghavan's uh, Merry Christmas starring Katrina Kaif and Vijay Setupati. The, the problem with this film, and I'm going to like address it's the biggest concern with it, is the title. Yes, the, the title of the film is, is the centerpiece to the plot. But it's very misguiding to the average viewer who has no idea what this movie is about. Like I know who Shriram Raghavan is, so which is why I will go watch the movie. I was that's how that's, that was the pitch to me. Like I had a friend who said, "You want to go for the film?" And I said, "Sure." Uh, I mean, who's in it? And uh, he told me the actors, and then he, and he went when he mentioned Shriram Raghavan as the director. I said, "Cool, I'm in." Yeah, uh, I was just gonna. I'm just gonna quickly interlude here. I was just gonna make the same point, right? There are probably two or three directors for me where I'm like, if this guy or this person is directing, I'm ready to go into the movie blind. Like Anurag Kashyap yeah. till recently was on the list. Now it's it's very hit or miss with even him. But Shriram Raghavan is like, oh, Shriram Raghavan movie? Cool. I'll, I'm ready to go in blind. Let's do this. So Shriram Raghavan is, is probably the best noir director we've had in quite some time. Absolutely. Most of his films are, are supremely well done. So you've got like, even if you were to go back, he was, I think he did the original documentary on Raman Raghav 
uh, back in the 90s before mm-hmm. he made his his feature film debut with Ek Haseena Thi then he did Johnny Gaddar and then he I think there's an agent Vinod in there somewhere uh, but he's done Badlapur uh, and Andadun which people really liked and I I'm not the biggest fan of but I really like everything up to the the last 20 minutes this mm. I was a very big fan of not because of the twists and turns that it provides uh, but because of how the film is structured now the story of merry christmas is set on christmas eve and it's about this guy called albert who's just come back from dubai uh, to collect things from his mother's old apartment in bombay the set in the 90s and he meets his landlord or his neighbor and they welcomes him back and he just walks around the neighborhood trying to get a grasp of how things have changed and he goes into a, a restaurant where a man meets him in a bathroom and tells him that he's on a date but um the date didn't tell him that she has a daughter so he wants to leave and that woman happens to be Katrina Kaif so albert goes to uh sit down at the table next to her next to her and then they strike up a conversation and she eventually takes him home and that's where things take off now that's that's all i'll say about the film and it it's it's such a fun ride i was rooted to my seat for the entirety of the film i was always trying to deduce what was happening how it was happening what the what the main play was because each of these characters they all reveal very little of themselves as the as the movie starts and as it progresses you start to see more of what lies beneath like classic noir fashion i think if johnny gaddar was james hadley chase uh Merry Christmas is Raymond Chandler. So you you can yeah like there's a direct nod to Raymond Chandler because he p- pulls out a a short story book in the film and I was like oh okay so I can see where your influences are. Now for Raymond Chandler for those of you who don't know has written one of the biggest noir films of all time called The Big Sleep starring Humphrey Bogart if I'm not mistaken. The definitive noir films in the uh, in the genre Raymond Chandler has had uh, has had a big part to play in both. So this film was was such a fun ride. It's two and a half hours long, but it does not feel it. It is wonderfully paced. It has a very interesting uh, use of a piece of classical music, which, in my wildest dreams, I thought would never make an appearance in a Bollywood film, but it does. Because as soon as I heard the opening notes, and I was just like, "Huh? Okay." And then it it has a very integral part to play in the in the plot as well. So I highly recommend you check it out because not a lot of people are watching this film. I think by the time I got to it in theaters, it was a Thursday night and it was relatively full, and it was purely down to word of mouth. It's produced on. I think this movie is produced by Netflix, so eventually it will come to Netflix, much like everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have the opportunity to watch this in a movie theater, I highly recommend you do. I want to. I just it's mm-hmm. a it's not a question of intent. It's a question of. capability Time. i need to yeah i need to figure out when i can do it but i definitely want to and on the point on of the use of music in sriram raghun's films my favorite by far scene in andadun is is uh, when you know he's playing the piano and uh, stuff happens in the background there's no dialogue and he's just playing the piano and you're just watching things go all the way to 11 in just that like Two minute scene, right? So mm-hmm. I'm just excited off of uh, just you saying, "Hey, there's there's some musical element to this film." I'm just like, "Hey, 
is he going to pull that off again you know part of me is like am i going to see something similar so it's uh, i'm already excited yeah it 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 definitely is 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 such a fun watch and great chemistry between i i mean you would have never ever thought vijay sethupathi and katrina kaif for a great uh pair on screen but they have wonderful chemistry and they really pull Vijay good performances Setupati, out of it i can understand he's a great actor right i'm just concerned mm-hmm. like does katrina i don't think she's a good actress or actor yeah but this is this is her career best if you were to ask me and i have seen a lot of katrina films this is Fair. probably her career career best performance and uh, she's good she's she's pretty damn good in the film uh, there are other characters i don't want to reveal who else is in the film Fair but this is this is a Wait, movie so just he plays albert he is albert he plays okay. the lead and he and katrina kaif is the is the date uh, he runs into yes i think you've set it up quite well um, mm-hmm. i will definitely try and make an attempt to watch it in theaters uh, because i think noir does is one of those genres that benefits from a big screen experience markedly so right over watching it at mm-hmm. home so i will try yeah. and uh, for anyone listening if you can just because siram raghavan I, i'll also endorse what i've been saying please go watch it give this man your money exactly yeah it's like give give good directors money if people are putting out nice stories well crafted stories please give them money otherwise yeah. we get stuck with some rehashed nonsense that no one Pathan is and the jawans and the bullshit uh, of the world fighter i don't even know siddharth anand needs someone needs to stop giving that guy oh, never mind i'm going to stop ranting yes. that's, a, that's a rant for another episode uh great so let me let's move on to my second film which is the 2010 british comedy four lines directed by chris morris i can see aben you're already uh laughing uh, going back to uh, i mean remembering scenes from the movie right no i i remember the the one character that shows up at the end of the film that is now a mega star so yeah i i mean, we will we will talk about it yeah. i don't want to like keep it under wraps uh, mm. we will talk about it so before before i jump the gun uh, so what four lines is about is uh, about these four british muslims uh, who are aspiring terrorists right I, i'm not i'm not making a mistake that's exactly what they are they're aspiring terrorists they're disenfranchised british muslims who in their eyes have Uh, valid reasons to want to uh you know take on the establishment and they want to do something about it right uh, they want to be very political terrorists right yeah. off the bat the the premise is it's hilarious it's bizarre it's 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 all of that and what makes it funnier is throughout the course of the movie they continue to suck at being terrorists right like these <laughs> guys suck at being terrorists there's a whole uh, section of the movie where uh, two of them uh, rizamit's character and kevan uh, kevan nawak's character are sent to this undisclosed i think it's pakistan i think pakistan they, right yeah they go to pakistan for yeah. a terrorist training camp where they are so out of place because they're they don't realize it but we can see it they are these privileged essentially they're like white muslims right in fact one of yeah. the four is a white guy who's a convert Uh, yeah. Hassan Al Britani. <laughs> Hassan Al Britani. Yeah. yeah. Hassan Al Britani. Mashallah, brother. Which is the name he's given himself, right? Himself. And, and he obviously to overcompensate uh, posits himself as uh, the most radical of the four, right? And and he's never fully accepted by the other three because they're like, hey, you're a white dude at the end of the day, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, so these two go to Pakistan. They have a disastrous time in the training camp, which. 
is ca- that whole sequence or that whole section of the movie is capped off with what for me is the funniest by far part of the film where they they need to uh, they're trying to shoot down a drone <laughs> with a missile launch <laughs> Before, they don't know who even gets there right like they're praying in the morning and they and they're praying in the wrong direction direction and, they, and, the and guy, uh, what are you doing he's like mecca's that way brother side pe dekhe idhar fuck off bro east is that way aap idhar namaz padhe that way is east bro mujhe malum hai is that way is east fuck is mental bro mecca is in the east yeah where the sun where it rises your bench or fucky prong it's just insane so while all of this hilarity is is playing out on screen subliminally the movie does land the message that you know what their execution of it might be uh, flawed but there is some kernel of truth to their disenfranchisement and the fact that uh, the way it plays out in the end right it it simultaneously manages to show why these people people feel uh, repressed or dis- you know disconnected from uh, or why these people yearn for a better life for themselves and how they feel you know blowing something up to their minds makes sense yet at the same time you can see them realize especially rezamet's character towards the end realizes the futility of their actions right and they start questioning whether this is the right approach to uh, putting the message out there and the film the movie does a beautiful job of uh balancing both ends with sensitivity right yes it pokes fun mm-hmm. at their actions it doesn't it never pokes fun at their intentions if you if you observe yeah. the movie at no point is like their motivations are stupid these are just stupid people with to to with motivations that to them feel genuine right so mm-hmm. towards the end of the movie it leaves you with a thought that hey maybe we need to understand them a little better maybe we need to feel make them feel a little less alienated there is you know we are to some degree responsible for the way they feel that's said the movie is fucking hilarious right uh, especially again the the cameo that we wanted to talk about so uh, towards the end when uh, waj who has a bomb strapped to him is holding this uh, chicken shop uh, whatever like this kfc yeah, equivalent guy, yeah. uh, hostage uh they send uh, benedict cumberbatch as the negotiator who has a very i think it's like a 2 minute or a 5 minute role where he is yeah. the negotiator and he's trying to relate to waj right so he's like uh, he's like waj um uh, he just asks about him where he's from he's like uh, i'll do an ask man waj he's trying to relate to him on, like what what his sexual preferences are and he takes it too far he's like I, i knew you were an ask man you were an ask man and then waj is like bro i'm not like you know mm-hmm. i'm still into women or whatever it, 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 i i can't explain the, the the way that just that scene plays out it's you're just I, it, this is one of the movies where i have had stomach aches multiple stomach aches through the course of watching it i think for me personally there are, there are two moments that stand out one is is obviously adil akhtar's shop situation where they <laughs> ask him how you hid your face and he, what he does <laughs> i'll put the scene here for those of you who haven't seen it like you have to see it he got a beard i covered it he covered your beard yeah how because it's so stupid this was the first one of the first few things i'd seen of four lines because it was during the festival routes back then and probably 2010 right this movie came out this was yeah. the first time i was paying attention to what festival films were like what sundance was like and i and i knew this was creating a buzz in that circuit 
and that one scene stood out to me so i was looking for it and the sidekick they hire uh, what's his name uh hasan hasan he Has- hasan Has- is the his whole show in at the conference where he starts rapping and a mujahideen and i'm making a scene now you're going to feel what the boom boom means it this is such a fun film it it also introduced me to top lander top loaders uh dancing in the moonlight which plays a huge i mean it's a cover yeah. but it plays such a huge part in the film dancing if you if you have yeah if you haven't seen four lines i highly recommend it it's, it's biting commentary on uh, on extremism uh which i think i forgot this other moment sorry which is um, mm-hmm. when uh, they're trying to get stuff that you know uh, unload the van and uh, uh, so the barry stolen they're being watched and uh, mm-hmm. there's you know, somebody taking photos of them barry stolen you need to keep moving your head so they can't get a clear <laughs> image of you and then uh, rizamin's character is helping them unload he just looks at these two doing this and he's like what are you guys doing think case they're taking pictures what barry says you come out blurry stop it stop it he's like surveillance is video you guys look like a couple of soupies on speed where i heard that <laughs> who wrote this like couple of soupies on speed it is like layered and brilliant writing it's it's really good it's really funny but but yeah let's uh, that that was four lines we'll quickly move on to mine and uh, mine let's let's jump back stay in hollywood so this is this is a well known film i think this is a movie that it it got its lead in oscar nomination and it is written by possibly one of the best writers working today aaron sorkin so directed by danny boyle this is steve jobs not the jobs movie starring ashton kutcher but the other one the one which takes place between three press conferences this isn't a biopic and and, and it really bucks the traditional biopic trend by showcasing the life of one person set across three major events the first is i believe during the launch of the macintosh the second uh, conference is when steve jobs is about to launch next and the third is during the launch of the ipod if i'm not mistaken yeah definitely during the launch of the ipod no it's not not the ipod i'm sorry it's it's, it's during the launch of the of the macintosh the blue pc this is possibly my favorite Aaron Sorkin film from a script What? perspective. This oh, okay. Yeah, from from the social network is still up there. Like the social yes. network is is up there. But in terms of the 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 screenplay and and the dialogue and how Danny Boyle executes it, it's so riveting. Like it could it you could make the argument it's it's two hours of of dudes and dudes and women yelling at each other. There are more people who can tell you about the ad than can tell you who won the game. I understand, but the ad said the Mac was going to save the world. It didn't say it was going to say hello. Showed a lot of happy people drinking Pepsi. We didn't say the world was going to end if you bought a Dr Pepper. The least you can do if you're going to downsize these people, they're going to live in the biggest houses of anyone on the unemployment list. To acknowledge them. That could very well be a valid criticism. but it's what they're talking about and what these conversations are pulling out you see a man who is so hellbent on his uh on his vision for perfection and and for supremacy that he just starts to treat the people around him like shit and it doesn't even affect him much until the end like when it begins he threatens to have one of the lead engineers fired because the demo won't say hello he makes some offhanded comments about his estranged wife and refuses to take custody of his daughter knowing full well that she is in fact his daughter uh then he has this whole confrontation with Jeff Daniels i think Jeff Daniels who plays um who plays the ex 
Pepsi CEO, I forget his name. Uh, and he was brought into Apple to help boost sales. And he and Steve Jobs had a massive falling out that led to Jobs being fired from the company. But there's a scene where he comes back later uh, and Jeff Daniels and him have a confrontation. And it's so damn good. The quorum call was a homicide. Right there, right there. That's the part that's bullshit, my friend. It was a suicide because you knew your cards and I showed you mine. I showed you mine and you did it anyway. Jeff Daniels is, was made for Aaron Sorkin material. I think he even does his Broadway yeah. production of Mockingbird. Uh, of course, the newsroom is what everyone knows. Um, but he is so damn good in that film. I think if there was an award contender that uh, that was considered a snub, that he, his role possibly had it. I think Scully. I think Scully is his what? John Scully is the is the name of the the CEO. Similarly, uh, Seth Rogen is very good in this film. So is Michael Fassbender. Seth Rogen bounces back and forth of Michael Fassbender as he tries to get Steve Jobs to acknowledge the Apple II team. And Steve Jobs is like, that's, that's the past. Fuck it. I have nothing to do with it. And a lot of it is, is fictitious. I think a big chunk of it is taken from uh, Walt Isaacson's uh, biography of Steve Jobs. But mm. a lot of it is obviously dramatized for effect. It could very well have been a play as well. It is a masterclass in, in screenwriting. There's one line that sticks out like a sore thumb, which is a Beatles reference. Uh, I, it particularly didn't fall well with me. But this is a movie that is tense, doesn't have a, and it's, it's purely conversational. It takes place in three separate rooms and much like, much like The Man for Mirth. And it really highlights the flaws of, uh, of megalomaniacs, of, of people who, who think that, that pe the people around them are just a means to an end. Interesting. I'm, I'm glad you clarified that that was going to be my first question, right? Is, is this the sort of film that, uh, portrays Steve Jobs in a positive light because if so then I, I would never have any interest in watching it. Right? He was an outright piece of shit and I'm glad that the narrative about him has finally you know it took for him to fucking die until people mm -hmm. could finally be comfortable with coming around and saying yeah he was a piece of shit and like you rightly said right having the right vision or uh, which again Yes, it did bear out in, in quite a few cases, but having the right vision does not justify the way uh, he treated people. There is no reason why the same results could not be achieved with just a little bit more compassion, right? Uh, and, and to be fair, this is my opinion. Uh, people are, are uh, welcome to feel differently, call me uninformed, call me an idiot. Fair enough. I, I, I would be the first one to say maybe I don't have enough information. But uh, a lot of Apple's success need not be directly attributed to him, right? People talk about how his design inputs really made Apple uh, the company it is today. But what about Jonathan Ives, right? He is the guy who was in the studios designing the product. Uh, it's very easy for someone to uh, just, uh, you know, give broad direction and then walk away and then call themselves a visionary, right? Visions are great, but only if they're executed. I think what really works in Apple's favor is in Wozniak, in Ives, and in, in the, the huge number of nameless people uh, that Apple did a good job hiring, they had a great execution machine. And uh, we, are, we have seen when Apple does get it wrong, right? The last couple of probably iPhone models have not have not brought that quantum jump and which is only fair you can't really have quantum jumps every year right yeah so they seem to have sort of plateaued out in in terms of what new they can offer 
and you know the irony being i'm i'm now saying this by while i'm uh, on a mac myself right uh, mm-hmm. it's the new whatever a2 chip one it looks good mm-hmm. it looks whatever but when i look at this machine and i'm like uh, they probably the probable number of people who under had to undergo abuse for me to sit and use this machine pro- is is probably not worth it right uh, you could have had the same result just being a little nicer to people and uh, again very asshole thing to say but jobs got his come up ends when he died of a totally avoidable reason if he had not been an ass about eating his fruitarian diet he could have he could have been cured at least, at yeah, least, just... exactly at least it shows consistency right it's the same stubbornness with which he pursued his uh, design visions which he applied uh, his complete and utter belief that hey what i know or what i believe is unquestionably right even in the face of very obvious signs of deterioration and the cancer spreading at least he was consistent in his stupidity i think jobs is and and this this is far from me to judge a man who has basically kickstarted a trillion dollar organization but he is very much what you would call a, a marketing genius because he didn't know how to code and this is and they alert to this in the film that he he understood human psychology that people would pay through the nose for exclusivity uh there's a conversation earlier in the film by Steve Wozniak and him uh, having a conversation and he tells him he tells Steve Wozniak that you wanted to make it this plug and play system where you could add multiple boards and i shut that down because i wanted to be a closed a closed system so it maintains its exclusivity there is a high degree of confirmation bias or oh, sorry um, not conf- what's the bias i'm looking for you know where you we talk about success cases there are probably 100 other companies who 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 try to build or leverage exclusivity uh, and try to build their brand on it and fail spectacularly right like yeah the, what are the successes we know of apple is probably the most famous one but here in india we have cred cred has also mm-hmm. built his its whole whole model on hey only the only the select few can enter it's mm-hmm. also very easy for if that message to land wrongly and for people to be put off by what seems to be very high handed elitist behavior and reject your proposition altogether right uh, apple uh, seems to keep getting away with it although now with their their whole uh, you know pig headedness on on connectors and you know all all of those protocols they seem to be getting whipped into shape especially in the eu uh, people have yeah. sort of had enough of uh, apple deciding to do things their own way and for everyone else to uh, get with the program so it need not always work right so if people take that message away from the story of apple i feel that's a dangerous message to take away i also sort of feel apple succeeded almost in spite of jobs that's how i feel right not because of him uh, i think but what happened said, was yeah what happened was prior to him coming back they went through a really bad period where they launched this thing that looked like a calculator they launched a bunch of really hit or miss products but what catapulted them to fame was uh during his time at next he had created what we now know as the mac os and but he didn't have a system capable enough to house it but apple had the resources so he sold them next came back in as ceo and then the blue uh, imac was born mm. and the imac catapulted them to fame and then suddenly when they were on top of their game came the ipod and that revolutionized music because up until yeah. then the walkman was was what you would run around and then somebody came to you and say hey dude came and, and said, dude i can store 
songs in this piece of music and there's no cassette and there's no cd involved it was a game changer no i and agree similarly I agree. yeah seven years down the line i mean yeah seven six or six years down the line came the iphone revolutionized smartphone and the smartphone as well i don't think they've so they have enough leverage to have succeeded on their uh i mean to to, to have the kind of bragging rights that they currently do have the macbook air i much like you i use a macbook air and there is no way in hell a system as compact as this should be able to accommodate editing and uh and podcasting capabilities but it does so you can package shit but if you once you unopen it and if it's still shit then the product will not sell like many other companies have figured out apple kind of consistently backs their marketing with great that's product that's true they charge a ridiculous premium for it right though yeah that, that's true this is somebody's somebody's given order it, it's a uh, i wouldn't buy this with my own money i wouldn't yeah right? i have this fundamental principle disagreement i would never willingly pay out of pocket to buy an apple i, I will never you know veer from that we have been, been having this conversation for 12 years yeah no no we've been having this conversation for a very i'm not smiling because of my i'm smiling because i we have i have known ruth from like almost 15 16 years at this point we have been having this conversation for as long as we've known each other yeah so uh, this is like a belief i've held like up inside for over 15 years now so the last point i want to make is uh, what i will give jobs credit for i think he had the ability or the knack to recognize either a great idea or recognize somebody who like this guy can come up with or this person can come up with the next big thing he had the ability mm-hmm. to recognize great talent or a great idea i think he had a great what do you call it you know gut feeling ironic that he died of pancreatic cancer though but <laughs> i think he had uh, a great gut <laughs> uh, uh, maybe it was more like the pancreas of dorian gray right all those okay enough 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 yeah you know from somewhere okay no more steve jobs talk otherwise it's going to turn into another steve jobs episode we have the four lines episode and the steve jobs episode all wrapped up in one but yeah. yes roth let's move on to your final film of the three right so the next movie i want to talk about is uh 2015's i in the sky uh again a british film uh directed by gavin hood uh starring helen mirren starring alan rickman in what is if i'm not mistaken his last film role or the last movie he shot for at least um starring aaron paul and a bunch of others so the mm. the premise of the movie is um, it it has three main geographical locations that you need to worry about right so the primary location is in somalia where uh, the the story is that uh, your boko haram esque i don't think they ca- call them out as boko haram but these uh, fundamentalist islamist organizations are running essentially running this town and there is supposed to be like a meeting of big wigs in this one house that uh, both british and american intelligence have been Uh, scoping out for a while uh, you are introduced to this family that lives right next door to this house to the safe house uh, which has a mom dad and a very charming little girl mm-hmm. uh, who helps their parents by selling the bread that they make at home and they show her innocent side you know she loves hula hooping and she goes to school and they spend enough time trying you know establishing the fact that there's this nice little family that just so happens to live next door to the safe house uh so that's one situation the other situation is uh in london you have uh 
what is essentially MI6 slash military intelligence, uh, who is, like I said, working with American uh, drone pilots to scope out this house and uh, they have intelligence about this meeting that's going to take place and uh, then they need to figure out how can they use this situation to cut off the head of the snake, right? How can mm-hmm. we uh, destabilize uh, Boko Haram leadership? I'm going to call them Boko Haram, although they don't. Okay. And uh, the third situation is um, in the USA, you have Aaron Paul and I'm forgetting this other female who is uh, who are drone pilots and uh, they need they are essentially the trigger, right? So when they are told they are the ones who are going to fire missiles from the drone um, onto that house if needed to, to take out the top leadership. So this premise is set in the first 10 minutes of the film and the rest of the whatever two-hour-ish runtime of the movie is essentially in real time, right? Uh, yeah. So they get to know, okay, this meeting that we, we had gotten intelligence about is happening. It's going down in the next half an hour. And uh, then the, then it gets into the nitty-gritties of what goes into uh, sanctioning an attack, right? Because uh, any attack, you can't really pinpoint its damage uh, to the radius that you want. There's mm-hmm. The movie establishes that there's always going to be some collateral damage, right? And then it gets into the moral uh, conundrum of how much collateral damage is justifiable because we are killing people that would otherwise have killed or you know sanctioned the killing of thousands of other more people. So it gets into the conundrums of that. Real time back and forth happens. Um, Helen Mirren's character plays a colonel who is overseeing the whole operation. And she's very pragmatic. She's like, hey, uh, if this family of innocence dies as collateral, especially that girl who uh, is selling bread right outside the safe house, right? And she, uh, Helen Mirren's character is like, if she dies, in, in the words of Ivan Drago, right? If he dies, he dies. <laughs> I'm sorry for taking you out of the situation. But... <laughs> Uh, that's the call essentially that her character has to make. And Helen Mirren is very pragmatic about it. Alan Rickman plays her superior who has to uh, sign off on the on the drone strike. Uh, and yet, he is also answerable to some politicians. And there's this whole angle of who bells the cat, right? If mm. if news comes out of, hey, we killed innocents in, while we, uh, you know, the wildest attack went mm. down. Who's going to be holding that bag of shit at the end, right? Where does the buck stop? And there's a whole wonderful dynamic of these politicians just passing the, you know, the responsibility to each other, saying, hey, uh, this is not, for X and Y reason, I am not the one that can take this call. It has to be you. And the other politician is like, no, but as per the statute, I can't take this call. So nobody really wants to bell the cat. Bell the uh, cat. So there's, there's that dynamic as well. I don't know if my description is making it sound right, but the movie is super riveting, right? What makes it fascinating is all of these very heavy concepts are being navigated and decided upon in real time. What would ordinarily be like this very lengthy discussion, you know, of like uh, intellectuals sitting around a table debating the theoretical, ap- whatever, mm-hmm. you know, the the theory of it. Mm-hmm. You're like, hey, practical application, it, yeah. 10 minutes, what's yeah. happening? Mm-hmm. Outstanding screenplay, outstanding screenplay, great performances all around. The ending, I would say, is where they don't drop the ball, but it's like the rest of the movie is a 9, the ending is a 7 or an 8. I don't think they stick the the last bit of the, 
the la- uh, exactly they don't stick the landing as in the sense the last bit of the message uh, where you know Alan Rickman trying to say we always know the cost of the decisions we make and don't ever mm-hmm. think we do that felt a little bit hollow to me but up until that point the movie is outstanding i don't know why it, it didn't why more people don't talk about it but it is an insanely good movie yeah i feel this is my one of my dad's favorite films of the last decade he talks about this movie a lot you saw it very recently i think you saw it on netflix at some point because it, around well, 2015 Prime, when this movie, yeah, i saw it very recently as well and like i've been this is a film i haven't seen even though i know a lot about it i remember the whole fact about it, about the sequences taking place in real time about the 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 attention it was getting and then it also happened to coincide with the with Alan Rickman's death so it's people this is a film that keeps cropping up in conversations every year and they keep talking about how impactful it is and how like how you take the theoretical consequences of people discussing oh this is uh, what happens if you detonate a bomb to take out an, an evil but take but kill innocents instead and i think the execution of it is what makes people keep going back to this film on a repeated basis yeah i i remember the term you'd use one sock movie uh, something yeah. similar was the case for me right i remember i started watching this movie i was taking a break from work and around 4 4:15 is when i have my evening snack and coffee so like i'll i'll start watching it on my phone and uh, i'll see i'll i'll watch it in parts I, a lot of times now i don't get like these stretches of 2 hours i i break mm-hmm. a movie down into parts and watch it but i watched those 15 minutes on my phone and once the movie kicked off i was like uh, is any of the work that i have urgent cuz i need to know what happens and i shifted it from the phone to my projector i put it on screen and remember puram came back from work she like isn't it a tuesday i was like yeah but you need to watch this don't come and tell you what's happened so far it's insane so it was like that right i, I forgot what i was doing and i just like really got absorbed cool so this is a film i need to check out it's been on my list for a very long time uh, it's on amazon uh, prime yeah should 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 go find it okay uh, let's move on to the last film on this list which is mine and this is a film i watched last year and i have i repeatedly go i don't sit through the entirety of it but i i watch it in bits like much like you said time is has been a bit of a constraint over the last couple of months or in the last year or so so and this film is long uh, this is 2021's oscar winning drive my car uh, directed by ryusuke hamaguchi and the film is 3 hours long i think it's adapted from uh, a haruki murakami shorts shorts collection called men without women i could be wrong uh, it tells the story of this guy called yusuke kafuku who is married to this television writer slash actor and she and him have she has a habit of going into a trance after they sleep together and narrating stories to him and that's something of a bond that they've formed after a particular tragic incident that has happened in their past uh she also records uh lines for him uh, to practice as he drives to and fro from work because he's an actor so whenever he has to practice her lines his lines she has the entire script down on cassette tapes and which he listens to while he drives to work and then uh something unfortunate happens uh, the rest of the film is basically a deep dive a very quiet contemplative deep dive into what grief looks like in different people there's nothing about this movie that is loud boisterous as a matter of fact not a lot of things happen in the film 
but it's what is constantly bubbling underneath the surface that really is riveting to watch i would remember watching this the first time and just thinking to myself wow it i don't do a lot of meditative cinema i don't like cinema that slows down and takes its time but i found myself drawn to this film in a way i couldn't quite explain like this movie is bonkers they drop the credits 40 minutes into the film like zero fucking zero fucks given the prologue is 40 minutes long and so much of it is just about the main character being asked to go he goes to hiroshima to direct a play for a festival and the play plays a huge part which is anton shekhov's uncle vanya and a lot of what is happening in the play mirrors uh what is happening to him in real life how he's processing grief how he is kind of essentially shut himself off and it it's a very interesting look at wh- how people react to grief and how some people are loud boisterous and some people get quiet and contemplative contemplative and kind of just close themselves off from society because they do want to feel that kind of pain again Uh, mm-hmm. there's a lot of regret that he's living with and, and he meets his driver they appoint him a driver because he's getting glaucoma in one eye and because the insurance companies will not allow him to drive as long as he's employed by the festival they employ this, this woman who drives him to and fro from uh his residence to the uh, to the theater every day and she has her own bag of grief there's no there's no love story or anything here it's just two people coming together and in, in a bit to heal Sounds very Murakami. Yeah, yeah. It's it has one of I think Koda was it came out the same as Koda did, and Koda won the Oscar for best picture. And Koda has that really nice sequence at the end where she is signing to both sides now, so that her parents can see it. There is a sequence in this film, and I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it, where Uncle Va- where he hires a deaf actress to um, portray a certain character in Uncle Vanya. and she steals the film in the last 20 minutes because she has this whole monologue about living with pain and how to process it and how we will and, and how all we can do is continue to exist through the rest of our days and it is told in pure silence there isn't a line it's just her acting with um Yusuke Kafuku sitting next to her or sitting in front of her one of the standout moments in recent cinema i so much so that i went and checked Hamaguchi's other work he has another movie called Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy which is 4 hours long this man doesn't like to edit so <laughs> it's uh, but, but this film is one of my favorites the, the soundtrack is beautiful everything about this film is what you need uh if you're looking for a movie to really just take your time with it's not everyone's cup of tea i have mentioned this repeatedly to people this is not a film that a lot of people would enjoy like it takes its time it it takes its time in setting things up there's not a lot happening but a lot of this film a lot of things are said in this movie without actually being said and i think that's the greatest compliment i can give a film and its director i mean to get around to watching it at some point but there's two things right one is given what i'm on the work side given there's enough ambiguity and stress i'm generally keeping away from very heavy films like mm-hmm. i want cinema to be a, a means of escape in the limited time that i get to indulge in it right so generally i understand i've cut down on like serious cinema and uh, the other part of the venn diagram being very slow cinema i think i'm just getting older older right so i get tired sooner and <laughs> uh 
late night whatever watching cinemas at night the the propensity for me to fall asleep has increased dramatically in the last 5 years yeah so, understandably uh, yeah the combination is not a movie never, yeah exactly yeah, so the combination is not a never... movie i would watch in the night i watched it over a weekend and i had to watch it the first time i watched it all the way through but ever since then i kind of split it because it's time is of the essence i fully get where you're coming from yeah so that's probably the reason i haven't gotten around to it but i'm just generally not just fascinated by japan i'm not just fascinated by the japanese cinematic industry or the japanese industry film industry but japan as a nation right because the other part being more so than cinema just to give you guys some background last maybe couple of years or so i've spent a lot more time listening to podcasts because you can do that along with work or whatever right so and i listen to a lot of history podcasts a lot of it has been uh japan focused or japanese centric it just there's a lot so i feel as a nation there are like we say about india right there are a lot of indias within india i also feel there are a lot of japans within japan right because you have there to some degree you have remnants of that feudal mindset the whole bushido culture you have the hyper modern japan you have uh the rural quiet uh japan there, there's a lot of facets that maybe sitting here not not knowing enough about the country the air of mystery that it leads to just makes the country very alluring to me right i i want to know more which is i'm always like hey japanese film not so much japanese food as as a vegetarian there's jack shit for us to eat but uh, generally i'm like allured by japan so for that reason if nothing else i will probably uh give this a watch over a quiet contemplative weekend i don't know when i'm going to get yeah. that but uh, i should definitely i think it's a movie that i would recommend watching with your partner as well because i feel this is uh this is this is a film that you both can enjoy it may, it may not be easy to recommend because if you're uh, this is a whole other topic for another episode but if you guys want to have uh a nice conversation about what you took away from the film this is one of those kind of movies but what to do if your partner has the attention span of a, a mere cat or a goldfish <laughs> yeah then this is probably uh, not it you know poonam <laughs> i know poonam rohit rohit what is happening rohit i can yeah, I, i know i know poonam in but uh, yeah but yeah but yeah great i think this is a, a i think is a good good mix of uh, movies that we like that we'd want people to watch Also the last mm. point you mentioned is a decent enough segue for us to give a teaser about what will probably be the next episode we're recording or the 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 next to next episode one of the, yeah one of the next the one of it, it's coming soon we have like a yeah, one of the rare few instances where we kind of know what we want to record next uh, so yeah. what i'm talking about is movies that we want to show our partner because we really love the movies and we've just failed to make them watch it through uh very yeah. specific topic but we there are, we have enough to populate the list right so so we're going to talk about yeah that. that's that'll be that'll be a fun episode that'll be something you can go share with your on, partner uh, valentines day exactly i will not i will not talk about gary marshall's valentines day on valentines day i am not that person <laughs> but yes uh that's us we'll see you on the next one don't forget to like share and subscribe uh take care have a good one bye bye